Hello, everyone, and welcome to Tell Me What You Really Think. I have with me today a very special guest. It's Kim Kid Curry, who first came onto the scene, on the radar at least, as a radio DJ in one of the top markets in the United States. And then later, a man with powerful words about how politics and legislation has influenced the broadcasting industry. I want to welcome you. Thank you, Lisa. I appreciate you having me. Yeah, I love having you here because we're going to talk about all sorts of subjects. I and mean, we're going to start off with um, talking about how you got started. So for those of my audience who don't know about your radio career, I can't imagine that there are many. Or for those who want to walk back down through memory, memory lane, can you tell me a little bit about how you got started? Like, I know nowadays the big thing we keep hearing about is the Nepo babies, you know, where you're a child as somebody who's already established and high up in the field. Was that the case with you? Um, I come from a little town in Colorado um, that has one radio station. And my, <laughs> and my dad used to work there. Now, I was 17 years old in my senior year in high school. And he came home one day and he said that the boss, his boss, wanted to know if I would babysit. Now, I used to make my money in high school by babysitting my parents' friends' kids. Yeah, so we all did. I assume that's what he wanted me to do. But my dad said, you got to go to the radio station. So I thought I was going to pick up his kids at the station. So when I get there, he says, no, I'm not going to have you babysit my kids. I need you to babysit the radio station because on Sunday mornings, they play back all, this is the 1970s, okay? So they played back all the church services from the prior week on Sunday morning. Yeah. And nobody wanted that job. So <laughs> he needed someone to come and babysit the radio station. But, you know, <clears throat> just like everything else, it was supposed to happen. Uh, Absolutely. It was you know, I remember those days. You're talking about the 70s. And I started in radio in 81 in the Syracuse market. Okay. And um, for those of you who were too young to know about that time period, much different being a DJ back then than it is now, isn't it? Oh, yeah. You know, I... I, I want to just put it like this. A guy could make a quarter million dollars a year doing what I was doing. You can't do that now. You can barely make thirty to $50,000 a year. I, I had ratings that were super high, and they paid me for those ratings. And the more ratings I got, the more money I made. And, uh, you know, yeah. so, but you, they don't do that now because as, as of 1996 is when the Federal Communications Commission dropped their ownership law. It used to be you could only own seven AM and seven FM radio stations, but in 1996, the FCC dropped that rule, uh, pushed by Bill Clinton, and it was unlimited amounts of uh, radio stations you can own now. Which is why there's now only four major owners of radio broadcast facilities. There used to be thousands of owners across America. Yeah. Uh, if you lived in a town and you had one radio station. There was a guy where I lived at that one radio station. He lived in Nebraska. He owned that station and he had his fingers on it all the time. Uh, I miss those days. I felt that it was so much more a unique experience and it was so personal and individualized. And it felt more like you were actually really talking to the people I felt. When you live in a town and you experience the same thing that people do every day and you walk into Publix and you don't find the chicken because they ran out of chicken or you go over to CVS and there's a problem over there or you go to Birdines and you can't find your cologne uh, and you can make these references on the radio, 
that's 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 what makes that connection. You can't do that now. I know people, one DJ who's on like five and six, seven, eight radio stations, yeah. and all they do is they soundtrack these things. They and so it's it's nothing what it used to be. I'm glad my father have, got me in the business when he did. And you had so much more responsibility back then. I remember, like you were talking about babysitting. I remember on weekdays, I'd be on a top 40 channel, which I do want to go ahead and touch on because I do know what your yours was as well. And then on Sundays, I used to do polkas and that used to be pre-recorded. And I used to have to put on a totally different persona for that. And uh, But we did so much more. Back then, it was vinyl that we were talking about, and uh, you had to queue up the, the record, make sure that you could time it perfectly. Like, the closer you could get to when the vocals started, the better it was. People loved that. Yeah. Yeah, there, those were the days. It was fun queuing up records. And, you know, remember, remember the intensity of those moments. You're on the radio. You've got to get a record, and you just said, okay, that's the, the Bee Gees and uh, Lonely Days. And then you turn your headphones off, the microphone goes on, the song is playing, and you reach over real quick. You got to get the next song ready because <laughs> that song is going to be over soon. And so that this the stress of being on the radio, and then you've got to get the commercials ready, and they've got to be in the right order. Did and you ever break the record? I, oh, I, I oh, I rolled over my owner. The owner of the radio station had a copy of. Peter Cottontail, an original 78 version of Peter Cottontail. And of course, you know what I did? I took it off the turntable, put it in the sleeve and set it next to me on the ground. Oh. When I rolled back, I rolled over Peter Cottontail. Oh and my gosh. One of the couple of reasons why I got fired from my first shop. So. Yeah, but everybody did that. Everybody had stories like that because you're writing down the songs, you oh. know, keeping track of what it was you played. You have, you know, the calls coming in, you're checking the time, you're doing like a million and one things. And uh, it just happened. And I remember, like, um, oh, I can't remember who it was. Which artist was it that had the white album record that came in? The Beatles did a white album. What's that? The Beatles did a white album. Yeah, no, it was after them. And everybody was like, oh, wow, I remember this with the Beatles. It was it was after that because I remember thinking, this is so cool. And I accidentally broke it, which is oh. probably why I'm, I'm drawing a blank now because it was not a good memory. <laughs> it's, it's out of there. Yeah. So I want you to talk about, so what market were you in? Okay, I started off in, like I said, my little, in, in Canyon City, Colorado on the only radio station in town. I went to the University of Southern Colorado in Pueblo, Colorado, to go to radio school, which is about 30 miles away from my hometown. Uh, I had my first part-time top 40 job when I was in college on KKAM. And after a couple of years of being in college and, you know, feeling my oats two nights a week part-time on the radio, I thought I was getting pretty good. So I started sending out air check tapes and uh, got a couple of bites, but nobody really took me serious. They called, but you know, that's all they did in the beginning and never called back. But then I got a call from a guy named Steve Clark, Stevie Clark from, used to be on KHJ Los Angeles. He was now running a radio station in Knoxville, Tennessee called 15Q. And so Steve hired me. Um, 
And the unique part about that, I'm, I'll get through this as quickly as I can. Uh, I'm driving across the country. Remember, it's, it's the 70s. And I was going to be on the radio, on my new radio station at 10 o'clock at night. And I wanted to come up with a good, you know, a real good radio name. Because back then you had Wolfman Jack. You had the Boogeyman. You had all sorts of guys with great names. <laughs> so at 10 o'clock, I was going to call myself Night Smoke. Oh, nice. So I'm driving across the country. I'm practicing. I'm hearing other radio stations as I'm driving across. And it was the 70s. I, I had never heard stations in Memphis and Oklahoma City. And as I'm driving through, I'm thinking, I'm better than these guys. So I was practicing. Hello, it's Night Smoke on 15Q as I'm driving across the country to my first full-time job. So I drive up to the, to the front porch, to the front door of the radio station, get out of my car, and I walk up the stairs, and I open the door. And there's a lady sitting at the receptionist desk, and there's a big, crazy, big, fat guy with curly hair and a Hawaiian shirt on behind her. And she says, hi, can I help you? And I said, I'm your new nighttime disc jockey, Night Smoke. And I put my hand out to shake her hand. And the guy behind her said, well, if it isn't Kid Curry. Now, wait a second. You've got to remember Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Uh, yeah. The old TV, the old movie, Butch Cassidy, Sundance Kid. Yeah. There was a TV show in the 70s. It was called Alias Smith and Jones. It was a takeoff of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Well, the two characters were Hannibal Hayes and Kid Curry. Well, again, I hate to, I hate to keep going back to the 70s, but I was the only guy within two states with the name Kim. And everybody made fun of my name. So my parents oh. said I could, so they called me by my initials, KC. But I hated the name Kim because everybody said it was a girl's name. It's a girl's name. And then when that TV show came out, all my friends started, hey, it's Kid Curry. And I thought, ah, cool it. I hate that guy. I hate Kid Curry. So the guy behind her says, well, if it isn't Kid Curry. And I looked at him and I said, I hate that name. And he says, well, then I won't sign your check. Kid Curry it is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All day. And the truth about that is there was only one Kid Curry in the radio business, and it was me. Uh, and because of the style of radio I was having, the, the show that I did, the things that I did, the style of my show, and the radio stations. I was on, you know, the original 96X in Miami. I was on Y100 in Miami. Hang on. I've got to. Uh, okay. Um so I was on some fairly famous stations. And so the fact that he gave me the name Kid Curry was really a blessing in disguise because everyone knew Kid Curry. You didn't, yeah, didn't confuse him with anybody else. So it was a great thing. So then, you know, that was when my career really took off was when I was in Miami and I worked for a bunch of big stations there. Eventually, I wanted to become a program director. You know how little DJs, we all think, well, I can be a program director. So I went to uh, KTSA in San Antonio and uh, took about a year messing up that radio station because <laughs> I only thought I knew what I was doing. Uh, <laughs> you got to remember, you know, this, the here now we're talking 1980 and it was an AM radio station playing top 40 music. And at that time, AM was basically doing talk radio and playing country music yeah. and FM was playing top 40. Yep, that's how it went. So, it, and and but at this time it was a country station and KTSA, believe me, is a heritage radio station. It's a big station, and it took me about a year to, for them to, to decide that I was probably not the right guy. Um, but then you take that, 
you take, then I worked, I worked in Washington, D.C., um, at Wash FM in Washington, D.C., during the Reagan administration, which has a whole lot to do with the books that I write. Oh, yeah, we're going to get into that a little later. And then Let me I back you in- up a little bit. Let me back yes, you up a little bit. Yeah. Okay, so Top 40. Yes, ma'am. Um, a lot of people don't know Top 40 back then. So tell everybody what type of songs, what type of well, artists. You know, when you're when you're playing current music, we call it Top 40. But when I first got in the business to do Top 40 music, I was playing Casey and the Sunshine Band, Dr. Hook and the Medicine Show, uh, Wings, Beatles songs. And then because it's current music, all those styles changed. Then from there, it went into disco. And then you started getting rap music. And then you started getting dance music. So all the current music, I always tell people, if if you're going to be on a music trivia show, I'm probably the guy you want. <laughs> I played all the famous songs that were big songs in America from 1976 till 2005. When I was started, Casey and the Sunshine Band, by the time I got done, it was Puff Daddy and Tupac. So yeah. all of that stuff is all current music. So that's what Top 40 is. It's the current music of the day. That's what and it is. And as I said, if you're going to have a trivia contest, I'm the guy you want. So I remember we used to do Top 40. And then on Saturdays, we used to have uh, Casey Kasem. And I remember when that first came in, because it comes in the mail, yeah. you know, and you have the records and you play that. And I remember the first time I ever saw that, I was like, this is the coolest thing. This is so high tech. They could get it to us in time. And I think that's a whole different world now. Big part of my life is my pictures with Casey Kasem and Dick Clark, guys like that who have, uh, you know, they knew me, which made me amazed. Uh, these guys were really my, my the guys you really want to be. When you're a young radio guy, you want to be Casey Kasem. You want to be Dick Clark. And as I grew up, my career was famous enough to where many times I was at the Grammys every year and I would always end up uh, hanging out with Casey and with Dick and get my pictures taken and everything. Very nice guys, wonderful gentlemen and uh, and legends and really kind of what we all wanted to be in the radio business. Yeah. So yeah. other than them, who are some of the, uh, the named people that uh, – really inspired you or you have something that's funny or surprising of a story to tell? Well, as far as my radio career, um, there's two guys that really mattered. Uh, Jerry Clifton, if you're in the radio business and you know anything about top 40 music since the 1960s till, you know, 2015, uh, Jerry Clifton and Bill Tanner, uh, these two guys ruled Miami radio. When I was in college in 1973, four, we used to listen to tapes of radio stations around America. And we'd listen to New York stations, Los Angeles stations, uh, Milwaukee stations, Miami stations. And the Miami stations were always so much more unique than all the other stations. And we would sit there in class and try to figure out why. Is it because it's the beach? Is it because there's sunshine? Is it because when you go to work there, you get to wear shorts? What is it? And when I first got to Miami, and, and well, first of all, I was amazed that I got a call from Jerry Clifton in the first place, uh, you know, because you send out aud- audition tapes, and then the phone rings. And as a matter of fact, I didn't even know who Jerry Clifton was. I had a radio DJ roommate who picked up the phone. It was Labor Day weekend, 1976. He picked up the phone, and he looked at me, and he said, it's Jerry Clifton, and he wants to talk to you. And I said, Jerry, who? 
But this guy was a real radio freak. So he knew. He put his hand. He says, Jerry Clifton, take it serious. So I, I'm like, hello. And he says, hi, um, I need you to tell your boss that you're not coming to work today. Uh, there's a plane ticket waiting for you to come to Miami tonight because I want to interview you for this job tonight. And I was like, okay. And so it was a, it was like Saturday or a Friday of that Labor Day weekend. I had to call my boss time. Well, hey, I'm sick. I can't make it to work. And I flew <laughs> to Miami. And then, you know, I'm from Colorado. So when that airplane door opened the first time in Miami, Florida, I was like, what is that? I'd never felt humidity. And the air smelled like fish. And I was like, what is this? But I knew who I was talking to. I had done some research. And Jerry Clifton and, and uh, is one of the legends of the San Francisco, Sacramento, California-type radio stations. Uh, he ran uh, big stations in Chicago, in New York City. And it just so happens that he was the program director of this station in Miami. That was the number two top 40 station. So I went to work for number two. But the reason they were number two was because they had to lie and cheat to try to compete against number one. Number one, Y100, would give away $50,000 cash prizes all the time. Well, 96X didn't have that kind of money. So we had to come up with crazy, crazy contests. And they had a contest on 96X before I got there that was called Find Greg Austin in the Bermuda Triangle. And if you find him, we'll pay you. But you see, you can't send people out to the Bermuda Triangle. <laughs> so eventually, the well, within six months of me being on that radio station, the court case was coming to term. And uh, suddenly everybody was leaving and everyone got fired. And I was like, I'm, I, I got to get out of here. This station's going to, they're going to shut it off. And they really did shut it off. They don't shut off stations. This station was so illegal. They shut it off. So I had to get out of there. So within the first six months, nine months, but what I had done is I had been on Miami radio for those six to nine months. And the guy on number one, Y100 had become a big fan of my show. So as the word got out that I was looking to leave 96X, uh, in fact, I was considering a job in Chicago at the time. The guy from Y100, the number one station in Miami, calls and says, listen, man, you need to come work for me. And so that was Bill Tanner. Again, if you know anything about top 40 music radio in the business since the, six, since the 60s till the 2015s, Jerry Clifton and Bill Tanner are two extremely important program directors. So for me to be under their wing for 30 years, these guys, I worked at, they, they sent me to other stations. I worked for Bill in Washington, D.C. I worked for Jerry in Texas. Uh, eventually, those guys got into be consultants, and there came a time when it was gee, we need somebody to run Power 96. I guess it's going to be Kid Curry. Uh, so I was—I came there as the young kid, the new kid. But 20 years later, I was the old programmer. And so I became the program director of Power 96. And we got the highest ratings in the history of that radio station. And it wasn't that I had done anything differently. I had gathered the, the people that were the programmers before me had gathered an incredible staff. But you know what? I'm a cheerleader. And I took the staff that I was given and I cheerleaded these guys up. And within six months, the ratings went from probably number four or five in the market to number one. 
And that's really all that matters to me uh, about my radio career because it was a station I had history in for over 20 some years. And to finally be able to be the guy and then to have it work so well with my consultants still in my ear, Jerry and Bill, still my best friends. Unfortunately, Bill's passed away now, but I still talk to Jerry. So these guys let me do something that, that solidified my career. And then one day in 2005. Yep. I want to get to that. I don't want you to spoil that because <laughs> you were yep. on the top. Yeah. You, you know, Everybody knew your name. Everybody listened to you. And then all of a sudden, you switched career paths. You got out of radio. Why did you do that move? I was home visiting my mother uh, with my wife and my kids. And my mom kept telling me, there's something wrong with you. Look at your face. Your eye looks funny. Uh, You're not walking straight. Something's wrong with you. Uh, concerned my wife enough to know. And I I knew I was having problems, but, you know, I'm, I'm an athlete. I mean, I, I, I just thought, ah, you know, I probably just messed my back up. Uh, but it concerned my wife enough to where they took me into the doctor and started trying to diagnose what was going on. And uh, in 2005, in April of 2005, I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. Uh, and it was coming on strong. Lisa, here's the crazy part. I've had MS all my life. It's just, if you know about MS, it comes and it goes, comes and goes, and sometimes it doesn't stop. With me, I was having exacerbations my whole life. I just didn't know what it was because they stopped. I thought one time I'd been stung by killer bees because my hand was curling up. I thought one time I'd been bit by fire ants because my right, my, my right eye vision was going and I thought I must have been bitten by an ant. Well, these are symptoms of multiple sclerosis that I didn't even pay attention to. And they happened a lot throughout my life. But in 2004, they didn't stop. So I had to make a decision. Uh, I was in a pretty good place in my life. My wife and I were uh, having a great time. My kids were all solid and everything was good. Uh, but I, the, the MS distracted me so much from my radio station that I had to stop. I, I, I didn't want to hold the station back. So I had to decide either I'm going to go try to figure out what's going on with me physically, or I'm going to stay here at the radio station. And I was so sick at the time, all I could think to do was quit and then start taking medicine to try to stop what was going on with me. Because I went from uh, walking like a regular guy to a cane to crutches and a wheelchair within two years. Everything was falling apart miserably. And so it, it took a lot. And, you know, when you're Kid Curry and, you know, first of all, you're the young DJ from different markets around the country and everybody likes the radio show, but then you're Kid Curry running Power 96 in Miami. Everybody wants to be next to you. But when you have a cane and then crutches and a wheelchair, nobody wants to be close to you. So I think we're beginning to understand um, when people have any type of issues. I I think we still have a far way to go. But I think back in the time period that you were talking about, it was kind of, you know, make yourself the invisible person. And a lot of people (laughs) just did that voluntarily because a lot of people didn't understand. They didn't, you know, I I don't want to say they didn't have the patience for it. I think they just didn't have the education on it. I went into a real cocoon. I mean, I, it was tough. It was tough for me. 
I mean, I was angry. I was angry because I was not doing what I was doing. I was going to the Grammys every year. I was, I had a boy band one time, you know, and Tom Jones, his illegitimate child was the lead singer of my boy band. So oh, I was doing wow. And that's a real story, by the way. And that's in my memoir. You can read that about that in my memoir. And we know it's true because Judge Judy said it was true. But anyway, um, so, you know, I was really having a great time in my life. And my wife and I were really enjoying things. But I was angry because, I mean, I got sick. And in two years' time, things got really bad for me. And then I, 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 I couldn't walk. I uh, lost my gait. Um, my vision was gone. The doctor had me on a, a medicine that I was on for about eight years, but I was also having to take steroid treatments because I was having flare-ups where my how, arm would just sit there and curl up. How and expensive was, is that? Oh, it's terribly expensive. You know, that's, it, it costs to be disabled in America and I can get into that in a different way in a bit. So yeah, it, it definitely does. I just want to touch on that for a second. I actually did a story for our magazine and, and website. Uh, the magazine's called Informed NY. Um, and we educate people on different issues without ever taking, um, it's a very unbiased type of thing. So you don't see it where it's promoting Republicans or Democrats. It's just to educate people on different issues happening in America so we could do better instead of keeping things as status quo. And I brought up all of these different drugs, you know, from hemophilia to things for children. One dose, uh, one of the drugs for hemophilia, one dose, $3.5 million. There was yeah. one for pediatrics, 1.2 million. I was like, how does anybody afford that? And then when you talk about the seniors who are on social security and they could hardly afford a roof over their head yeah. and you're asking them to pay like $600 for cholesterol medicine, they, they go without. You know, I, I get a wheelchair for my insurance company, one motorized wheelchair that I use in my house. But if I want to leave my house, I've got to be able to take this wheelchair out of here and put it in a vehicle so it, I, it can transport me somewhere. And that's a big vehicle. And the government doesn't pay for that. I have to get that. So in order to not have to buy another $50,000 vehicle, I just bought another wheelchair. So I have a wheelchair in my in, in my car. Uh, so I can, but I, I take my motorized to my car and I, I, I have hand controls. I had to pay $3,000 for the hand controls. It's $5,000 per wheelchair. I have a home that is three stories. I have one of those chair masters that takes me to every level. That's very expensive. $30,000. Do yeah. I get any tax breaks? You used to get tax breaks. for It's just not fair and it angers me. And I saw this first happening with my father who was in a head-on collision with a, a tractor trailer and had both his legs amputated. And I could see it was coming. He, was, he used to get benefit. He used to get tax breaks. But then suddenly when I get into a wheelchair, there's no tax breaks. I pay for everything except for one wheelchair. And in order to, to prepare myself in case I have any serious medical malfunctions, I've got to have the best insurances. So I pay a lot of money for insurance. Uh, and it's just not fair. I mean, I didn't, you know, I shouldn't have to, I should get a tax break for being disabled and having to buy the things that I have to buy to survive. So anyway, yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, I, this is exactly what this show is about. And, uh, and that's one of the reasons I wanted you on because now we're going to get into um, that section. And that is the fact that when you got out of radio, 
you know, your life changed. You found out how much it costs to be disabled in America, but you are somebody who rises to the top and you weren't going to let this beat you in any aspect of your life, including professionally. And you became a writer. You know, um, after eight years on the same medicine, the doctor was getting desperate. He says there, cause there were only like four medicines when I first got diagnosed eight years later, there were eight medicines. And so he quick changed me at one point. And he said, I want you to change this medicine, this injection. I went from getting a shot every day to a shot three times a week, which is awesome. Um, but then I want you to take this 30,000 IUs of vitamin D every day. I have a doctor, Dr. Alan Bowling, who's my MS doctor, who believes that there's a connection with MS patients and vitamin D. And when you combine high doses of vitamin D with the medicine, he believes it can really help change the direction of the condition. Well, first of all, I had a radio show. I used to put my mom on the radio all the time and she'd have a cold and, and I'd laugh at her cold. She'd well, you know, I'm taking my vitamin C, I'll be fine. So I never really, I didn't ever take vitamins very seriously. So when the doctor changed my medicine and he says, you got to take these vitamins, I kept telling him, come on, man, vitamins don't do anything. But every time we had an appointment, he harassed my wife. He said, you got to tell him to do this. So six months went by and I changed the medicine. Nothing really changed with me physically. Then for six months, I'm taking 30,000 IUs of vitamin D every day. And then suddenly I started thinking, wait a minute, I don't feel as bad as I used to. I used to always feel like fingernails down the chalkboard. I don't feel like that now. And what happened was my condition was, was stopped. I mean, I'm not getting any better, but I'm not getting any worse and haven't for the last eight years. So I can tell you that there is magic in medicine. Um, I'm very proud of my doctor, Dr. Alan Bowling. By the way, I'm going to put up this book. This is his book, Optimal Health with Multiple Sclerosis. If you're having a problem, please look at it uh, and, and take your vitamin D if you've got this problem. Uh, but you know, make sure you check your doctor you first. You know what's interesting is as advanced as the medical field is getting, they're also reverting back to things that our grandparents knew. Yeah. You know, like you were talking about your mom and the vitamin C. These are things that everybody thought, and then modern science comes around. Yeah. Now we think, oh, this doesn't work. And you know what I have been finding interesting, and I've been interviewing people on this more and more, is remember a long time ago we would watch movies, and they would show like basically these, these hokey type of doctors, and they would be doing this vibrating sound type of thing, and oh, that's supposed to make you better. Well, I interviewed this one a young kid, he's only in his, his early twenties. He has cystic fibrosis and you know how that just overtakes your yeah. lungs and everything. So he went to a concert, speaking of music, he went to a concert and they played a certain song and all of a sudden his lungs felt perfect. He had never felt that before in his life. And he was like, this doesn't make sense. So when he went home and he started feeling bad, he played that song again. The same thing happened. So this was right before COVID. So he got some backers and the backers went ahead and, you know, he's like, look, I need the money. I know the notes that help with this. 
And they went ahead and backed him. And during COVID, a lot of the hospitals, in addition to everything else they were doing, they were going ahead and using those notes. And they found that it cleared up a lot of the problems with people with COVID. It helped an awful lot. So they're using that now with people with any respiratory problems. And Mm -hmm. then from that, I've interviewed people who said that they found the certain notes uh, help tinnitus. It helps different muscular, you know, issues and so forth. And, you know, all of that was from a long time ago. Our grandparents talked yep. about things like that, and now we're revisiting things. Well, after being scared for eight years, I mean, I was scared. I thought I was going to die. I uh, didn't know what was going to happen to my wife and my kids. It was really concerning. Uh, but then when my condition leveled off, it took a couple of years for me to, to, you know, my wife started saying, you've got to stop being so mad about being in the wheelchair. This is where you are. So I had to take a mental change. I had to, you know, as my wife says, our life was like one of these snow globes and all of a sudden shake it, everything went everywhere. So it took me a couple of years to finally start thinking, well, maybe I'm not going to die. Maybe this medicine is doing good. Maybe I need to start figuring out how to create a new me. And that's when I I thought, well, you know what? Uh, I had a pretty exciting radio career. Uh, there's all sorts of funny stories about Snoop Dogg and Marilyn McCoo and Billy Davis and Gloria Stefan. My daughter farted at her. Um, all sorts of fun things about the radio career. Then I could write about the diagnosis, and then I could write about that it costs to be disabled in America. So I hired a lady. I, I Because I'm a radio guy, I don't know anything about writing, so I hired the lady who founded the Northern Colorado Writers Association, and uh, and at first she wouldn't even talk to me. She made me read books about writing stories. And one of the books is called Save the Cat Strikes Back. Uh, and it teaches you how to write your memoir. It teaches you how to write a story. So for six months, she made me research. And then for another six months, she made me write stuff. And she'd do the, you know, teacher with the red pencil thing on it and make change this and, and critique that. And so about a, about... 18 months for me to go from not having a clue how to write a memoir to finishing the memoir. And so that was exciting for me, being able to talk about the career, which is a fun time, and then about the diagnosis, which is a scary moment, and then what it's like to have a chronic disease, and then to figure out that it costs and it's not fair. Yeah, but let me, I'm going to ask you about something else. And before I ask you, I just want to preface that again, with this um, podcast, as well as with the magazine, um, we try to eliminate as much as possible ever using the words Republican or Democrat. And the reason we do it, and we've done an awful lot of study on this, the second you mention one party or the other, you're going to go ahead and shut down the ears of half of a group. And there's too many important issues that you need people to embrace before they ever find out who supported it or who opposed it. So when I'm going to ask you this question, as hard as it is, and I know it's hard because we're so used to, you know, being exact when we're using our words, but unfortunately, sometimes when we're exact, the world is so polarized right now that it automatically shuts people down instead of them listening to the issue. So here we go. Okay. I want you to tell me about the Fairness Doctrine. Okay. In 1934, Federal Communications Commission put together the federal, the federal communications bylaws. Uh, it was important for them to put radio stations in the hands of people who demanded 
to have equal comments about all views. They want everything to be on the up and up, uh, fair and balanced. You keep re- they keep repeating the phrase fair and balanced. So they put together this thing called the fairness doctrine, which was a rule that required equal time for contrasting points of view. In other words, if someone you heard someone lying on the radio or television, you had the right as a citizen to go to that TV station or radio station and demand equal time to dissuade that lie, to call the liar a liar and say why. Here's the lie. You could do that with misinformation. You had the right until 1987. Yeah. And this um, was, by the way, it was upheld by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1969. So oh, it yeah. was challenged and the Supreme Court said, no, this is this is going to stand. This is for real. And but then if you research hard enough and believe me, I've been in the middle of this for a long time. Remember that President Reagan did some union busting, got rid of the air traffic controllers uh you know, changed Ma Bell, completely broke up the telephone uh, systems. Uh, He dismantled the Federal Communications Commission. Now, if you look at what equal time means, that means if you go on for two minutes and you lie for two minutes, I get two minutes of equal time to dissuade your lies. But that two minutes of time is actually money. There came a point in the 86, 85, 86 time when the broadcasters of the day got to President Reagan and they said to him, Mr. Reagan, this equal time thing is costing us money. It's affecting our bottom line. So we got to figure out how to get out of this. And that's when President Reagan said, well, the fairness doctrine, the way it's written, he believed was antagonistic to the rights given in the First Amendment, the right of free speech. So he went out and said, and then the Fairness Doctrine was connected to the the Fairness in Broadcasting Act of 1987. It was a whole act, made it all the way through Congress and was voted. It was passed. President Reagan vetoed that bill. And that's what stopped the Fairness Doctrine. So suddenly, as of 1987, there's nobody to stop anybody from lying on American broadcast airwaves. And if you remember what was going on in 1987, there was a guy by the name of Rush Limbaugh who comes on the radio and starts spewing things and lies about people and misinformation and got to do it unabashed. And I believe, and many people believe, that that's the beginning of the division you have in America today. Because when one particular group of people can spew, spew, spew and not be debated, what you've done effectively is you've taken away my right of free speech, Mr. Reagan. You've taken away my right of free speech to call a liar or misinformation out. And that's what my complaint is. So, and the fairness doctrine comes up in Congress recently. In the last two years, it's come up again. But there's one party who doesn't want to talk about it because they have benefited from it. And I'm not going to... I think it's... And, and let me just interrupt you. I think it's a little bit more complicated than that. I And this is just from my point of view, and I'd like to hear yours. So on the pro side about the fairness doctrine, I thought that it was a very important piece because it allowed people to make an informed decision. You know, if you hear something on one side, you got an equal balance of hearing it on the contrasting viewpoint. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what makes America America, listening to all sides of an issue 
and then going ahead when it's something controversial, going ahead and taking all that information and processing it and deciding how you're going to interpret it and how you're going to respond to it. So I thought it was great from that. And I thought it was great because it created a little bit more participation within the local governing process, you know, to make sure that, you know, not only are people more informed and stuff, but it, it just, it just made it more holistic, you know, more of an involvement. What I think was a big con about it though is the fact that there was still a lot of manipulation when it came to it. I know that there were stations that would go ahead and say, okay, well, we have one point of view on this. We have to give equal time on the other side. But the people that they would pick to do the opposing side would be people who either were not well-versed in it, were a bad spokesperson for it, somebody who basically went ahead because of their performance with it, went ahead and still gave just one side of the issue. Yeah, <clears throat> and I remember that too. And that's a process. Um, you know, that's what, if, if your boss was the kind of boss who didn't do that, didn't go out and, and actually found educated people to speak on the topic, then that would be okay on that radio station. Uh, yeah, there were many bosses out there who just tried to get by because they needed to get the uh, requirement of equal time on. But yeah. that's process. I, you know, there's a thought that, you know, why is the government taking such a big control over things rather than just letting the First Amendment be the First Amendment? And I believe a lot of people nowadays are basically like with how technology is advanced, we don't even need to do it like that. We could go ahead and say, you know, here's this issue, go ahead and click on this. You know, you can not only hear other people's issues, you can go or their points of view on it, but you can also go ahead and record your own and add to it. And then that way you're not having, you know, just a simple one-on-one -on -one that costs the broadcaster time and money, but you can have numerous people um, bringing their own perspectives to the issues. Uh, what you need to do is make the entity responsible for the content. And so if someone comes on and lies and spews misinformation and that entity can prove that there's lies and misinformation, then they will take that guy off. And then guess what? The next guy who comes on and tries to spew misinformation, if you make the entity responsible, it'll go away. I think the entity, no matter who they are, we have the big media today. And I think you hit it right on the head when you were talking about how so few people are the gatekeepers of information nowadays where it used to be a lot of independent people owning different stations because so i think whether it's to the left to the right whatever i think you know uh, they're just trying to go ahead and put together their point of view rather than present the issues let people from hearing the issues want to research find out more because we have all this information in front of us you just have to do some of your own research get them so they're interested in wanting to find out more about it and then let them form their own opinions don't go ahead and force your opinions on them but you're absolutely right you know it doesn't matter if it's fox it doesn't matter if it's cnn it doesn't matter there's so many that are just like that that they just go ahead and they'll take headlines from bills they'll take headlines from anything and skew it to whichever way fits the narrative that they want to do. And that's the problem we have today. And until someone decides that lying should not run rampant and that someone has the right to call a liar out as a liar and then let people decide. That's the thing. What you said was, yeah, you can give the information, have both people speak, 
but that's you have to force this issue. This is important to America. You have to force this issue. You can't imagine that everyone's going to see both sides uh, because they don't. They, they see what they want to see, and then they stop reading. Uh, I think you have so to you, force the issue. You have a book about a little girl's, I don't want to say little, but a girl's journey. Yeah. And uh, I want you to tell my listeners a little bit about it. Okay. Now, the first book, The Death of Fairness, is the story about what happened to a small American town and its only radio station after President Reagan vetoed the Fairness and Broadcasting Act in 1987. Okay. Now, that book, I sent it off to Hollywood. And I've got some friends in Hollywood who read it, and they said, you know what? You need to expand this. We love this story. We need you to expand this because we need you to do some character development, et cetera, et cetera. So that's when I wrote Bonnie's Law, The Return to Fairness. What this story is about is a little girl named Molly who's eidetic. Now, are you familiar with that phrase, eidetic? Yeah. Okay. There are some people on the planet who see, hear, smell, and remember it all. Those are eidetics. Well, Molly's eidetic, and her dad discovered this when she was two years old. So as she was growing up, she was ultra smart around classmates, but her favorite thing to do was teach the classmates everything she knew. So as Molly grows up all the way through school, everybody loves Molly because she's making everyone smart. She has a friend that she meets who moves in from Mexico around fourth grade or so, and they become best friends. It's Molly and Bonnie. And in ninth grade, they had the local radio station guys come to the social studies class and talk to the class about the mistake that they believed the president was making by vetoing the Fairness and Broadcasting Act that was taking away the Fairness Doctrine because lies were going to be spewed without stopping. So they took that on as a ninth grade project and, and ended up researching it to the point to where they knew everything about it. They, they actually debated it in debate class when they were seniors. And then the night of graduation, Bonnie doesn't wake up from the next morning. Um, and so it really crushes Molly for a while, the eidetic. She's got all these things in her brain. She wants Ma she, she and Bonnie were going to make sure that they told America about the fairness doctrine because these two little girls wanted to bring it back. But everything stopped at age 18, the night after graduation, when Bonnie didn't wake up. But through a series of circumstances, 25 years later, there's a fire in her hometown, and the fire causes all sorts of damage. 17 friends die. In fact, she ends up in a wheelchair, the protagonist, Molly. And she realizes that the reason that she's in that wheelchair is because the radio station has been taken over by a bunch of spewing talk show hosts who are spewing lies and disinformation and a lot of the people stopped listening to the radio station because they didn't want to hear the lies. Well, when you're not listening to the radio station, you don't know this big fire is coming through town. So she believed that the reason that everyone died was because of the radio station turning the radio station from a local entity to a syndicated talk show entity with one theme. And that was anything they could do against the fairness doctrine. So she decides that she's going to bring it back. And when she, after she's 35 years old, she decides she's going to go run for Senate. She gets to be a senator in her state. Uh, she gets the bill, the brand new Bonnie's Law, 
which is the return to the fairness doctrine. She gets it all the way through the, through Congress. Uh, it comes down to a 50-50 vote, and it loses because the opposite party is in charge. The last page of the book has Molly going to the elections office because now she's going to run for president because she wants to bring back the fairness doctrine. So that's what Bonnie's Where like. can somebody get this book? All these books are available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon. Um, my website, krcurry.com, has all the information you need. But all these, uh, they're, they're available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all everywhere you can get books. Uh, the first two books, my memoir and The Death of Fairness, are actually on Audible. I haven't done Bonnie yet, but I'll get that done soon, and that'll be on Audible too. That sounds great. I want to thank you so much for being my guest.